So here we go. We have a recording. We are live. So here we are. This is Abnormal Psychology. Here's the sign-in sheet for today. There you go. So Abnormal Psychology, what we're going to do now is we're going to wrap up our discussion on personality disorders. So I believe this is recording three for this chapter. It took us a little longer to kind of get through some of this stuff than, than normal, but it happens. So here we go. Let's go ahead and get started. When we last got together, we talked about cluster A personality disorders. Um, those are the ones that are considered odd or eccentric, right? Now we're talking about cluster B disorders. These are erratic, dramatic, and emotional. So that's kind of the way to think about these categories. And we're going to make our way through, again, the four disorders, personality disorders that exist in this category are antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and then narcissistic. So let's go through and see. So common descriptors for those who have antisocial personality disorder, here's some of the things that you'll see, some of the symptoms that they show. They're deceitful. They tend to be aggressive. They tend to be manipulative, irresponsible, impulsive, and reckless. Remember, this is the guy from the mall parking lot. These are the people that do not believe that um, the rules apply to them. These people routinely violate the rights of others. They appear to show no empathy, sympathy, or concern for people around them. I might use people but I use people because it's kind of fun. It's like a cat playing with some prey. I just want to see if I can you know, push your buttons or trigger you. I remember working in a unit in the prison and it was all antisocials primarily. They were people who couldn't even get along within the walls of the prison. And they would just sit and they would yell things at each other, you know, more so than normally happens in a prison, but they would, they would just attack somebody. They would, talk about their mother, they'd make inappropriate comments, and the other person would get so pissed off, you'd hear them banging on their cell, and that just gave them more. It was like watching TV. If I can push your buttons and get you to go off, then I sit back and just go, what a fool. You know? Ha, ha, ha. I got you. Like, that's what they're, it's, it's almost like a game for them. They can be superficially charming, and they can use this ability to exploit relationships and situations, and they do. You know, some of the most famous serial killers were not nasty, evil people at first. They were very superficially charming. That's what got people to kind of go along with them, and then the nastiness came out. They have a long history of these kinds of activities dating back to age 15. So again, normally a personality disorder is not you know, diagnosed until after 18, but they have to have, it's got to be a pervasive pattern an inflexible pattern. So years of this type of mindset. So again, it has to date back to age 15. Evidence of a conduct disorder, which is, used to be considered a childhood disorder. Conduct disorder is um, serious violations of the rule, aggressiveness, deceitfulness, destructiveness during adolescence, but it doesn't, it's, they're still changeable, it's still changeable. So one way to think about this is, in order to be antisocial, you have to have met the diagnosis of conduct disorder, but not all conduct disorders turn into antisocials. 
You know, so think about it as a circle, right? So here's the big circle, right, of conduct disorders, right? And so, again, this means before the age of 15, violations of the rule, usually in and out of juvenile homes, getting in trouble, you know, some kind of bad behavior. And then inside that circle is a smaller circle, and this is those people who are going to become antisocial personality disorder. So essentially, all antisocial personality disorders needed to have at least meet the criteria for conduct disorder previously. Now, maybe they were never diagnosed, but they need to meet the criteria. So that's some of the stuff that we see. All right? Antisocial individuals may use dramatic acts in manipulative ways, threatening violence or suicide in order to exploit others or achieve some goal. They tend to be at higher risk for suicide because they use suicide as a manipulation. And then sometimes it goes wrong. Right? Um, histories of violence and exploitive sexuality, together with lack of remorse and indifference to the suffering of others, contributes to stormy and assaultive relationships. So again, that's some of the stuff that we see. It's pervasive in all areas of this person's functioning. Although it might be tempting to you know, equate repeated pattern of criminal activity with antisocial, criminality alone is not sufficient. Just because someone's been in and out of jail does not mean they're antisocial. Might mean they make bad choices, might mean that you know, they, they, they don't learn very well, but that doesn't necessarily mean antisocial. Antisocial, even for career criminals, is, is not a, a given. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, well, you're a career criminal, you're an antisocial. Well, maybe a better way to describe that is you have antisocial tendencies, but you may or may not meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Does that kind of make sense? So it's something to kind of think about. Um, and again, here's the subclinical label that better applies to persons, adult antisocial behavior. Again, this tendency towards antisocial behavior Right, that seems to be indicative of career criminals, you know, back and forth. But again, a career criminal may still have remorse, may still feel guilt, may still feel, you know, have close relationships with others. They just continue to make the bad choice over and over and over again. So again, that's something that you, you kind of think about. Now, there is this term constitutional psychopathic inferiority, which has been shortened to psychopath. And that emerged in the 1800s to refer to an antisocial pattern, um, strongly implying some kind of biological or heredity kind of component. Um, the DSM-2 described um, antisocial personality disorder. So again, that's, they kind of switched the name in DSM-2, um, but we still see psychopath being used. So whether it's an appropriate term to use, it's an older term, mm, I'll let you kind of you know, be the decider of that. It is the same thing, it's just an older term, it's not the one that we use now. Right. Right. When we talk about serial killers being, you know, psychopaths, you're right. They're just a severe form of antisocial. Again, psycho like a, a psychopath seems to indicate a more severe condition because there's this almost biological heredity component to it. So 
if it's not biological, if it's not genetic or heredity, then is there still a chance of treatment and change? There is. But if it's biological or genetic, maybe not so much. Um, here are the essential features. If we're going to diagnose antisocial, what do we have to see? Number one, a lack of uh, um, conscience uh, or feelings of remorse, impulsivity, and inability to delay gratification. They want things now, that's why they take them. If you're thinking in Freudian terms, they're all id. I want something, I take it. I want someone, I take them. I do whatever I want. You know, damn to the world. They have an inability to profit from mistakes. In other words, they don't seem to be able to learn from their previous mistakes. They have a lack of emotional ties to other people because I feel no empathy or remorse or sympathy. They tend to be stimulus seeking, so they require a high activity level. So maybe that's why they're always stirring the pot and pushing other people's buttons because they need that kind of energy, they feed off that. So they, they have a stimulus seeking and they have an ability to make a good impression on others, but that soon fades. Because when others need help or need remorse or empathy, or you know, they can't, they can't produce it. If they do, it's very superficial. You almost, sometimes, now they can be really great actors, but sometimes you can end up seeing through it anyway. Psychopaths show less anxiety than non-psychopaths. So when you take a look at anxiety, right, or a, a, an, an anticipatory anxiety is anxiety where you anticipate something bad's going to happen. Well, guess what? Psychopaths don't really seem to care. You're gonna, you might get caught by the police, so I don't care. They don't show that anxiety that you and I. You're driving down the road, you're speeding, you see a police officer on the side of the road, and then you're looking in your rear, mirror, your rear view mirror going, oh my goodness, are they going to pull out? Oh, oh, oh. You know, I anticipate like anxiety. No, they, they don't. They just keep right on going. Almost oblivious to that, to the anxiousness that a normal person would feel, if you want to think of it that way. Um, it says perhaps that contributes, this lack of anxiety in stressful uh, situations, Perhaps that contributes to their willingness to indulge in risky behavior and their difficulty to learn. Because again, if I don't have anxiety, I have no reason to change my behavior. And so do I really have a, the reason why you learn is you make a mistake and you go, ooh, I don't want to feel this way again. I'm not going to do it again. Mm -mm. They make a mistake and it's like, mm -mm -mm. okay, I got caught. Let me do something else. Antisocial personality disorder does tend to run in families. We do see a pattern. Um, and we know that relatives of females with the condition are at higher risk than relatives of antisocial males. So maybe there's a higher likelihood, it seems like, that mom's going to pass it on to their offspring, if you want to think about that. You know, normally we associate antisocial with male because of the aggressiveness and everything else. So if you have an aggressive antisocial female, and you know, we would, if we're, I know this is a stereotype, so don't shoot me. But women in general tend to be more nurturing than men. In general. Right now that's changing. There's a lot of very, you know, nurturing males. But, you know, when we look at a group, so when you have a female now that doesn't have that nurturing kind of capacity, which requires empathy and sympathy and an ability to kind of, you know, have concern and they're aggressive, that's really a change from what you would expect. So there's got to be some kind of genetic 
heredity component in there, and that's kind of what we see. Does that make sense? We know that both adopted and biological children of parents with antisocial disorder show a higher risk. So again, it's not just genetics. There is an environmental factor. You're raised in an environment where your parents teach you that the law doesn't matter. You do whatever you want and you, you take whatever you can grab. You as a kid may continue that pattern on and then more likelihood, especially if it runs in the family to begin with. But if you're adopted into that family, you can start to acquire those those you know patterns so something to think about with other personality disorder if we're talking about treatment um, treatment is difficult to do there are some that say you can't treat antisocial personality there are others that say that you can um, there's no real treatment evaluations that provide a clear validated approach that works all the time um, rarely are they motivated or committed to treatment, because again, they don't think there's anything wrong with them. Our guy from the mall parking lot, she had insurance, just to have her move out of the way. Why the hell did she get in the way? It's her car, you're stealing it. I mean, <laughs> what would you do if someone was trying to steal your car? You'd try to take it back, you know? I mean, she's an elderly lady. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you, right? There's no general sense uh, uh, among researchers that treatment is more promising at earlier ages than um, later ages, or there's a general sense, I should say. So if you can treat an antisocial early on, then maybe you can make a dent, but it seems like the more ingrained that pattern becomes, the more difficult it is. But again, there's not research on what do we do. We can use medication, but sometimes these folks are medication seeking. So are they just, you know, is it really helpful or not? We can use, we can use, you know, talk therapy, but talk therapy requires that you build a relationship with the person. And again, these folks don't have any desire for relationships. Like they, they don't want to get close to people. They can't. So. so that's antisocial. We spend a lot of time in antisocial. That's probably one of the biggest ones in this cluster. The second biggest one is borderline. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. Borderline, again, think of someone teetering. They're on the border. That's my best example, they're borderline, teetering back and forth. They have unstable relationships and emotions. That's what characterizes borderline personality disorder. So again, they're, let me pause a second. Sometimes people confuse borderline personality disorder with bipolar mood disorder. Bipolar, someone goes from manic to depressed, right? They can even be a little bit psychotic in the manic state, right? They can, they start to lose touch with reality and then, of course, depression, depression. You may see that in a borderline. In other words, their mood goes from one extreme to another. But here's what makes it different. It's more than just mood. It's mood. It's social interactions. It's perception of self. Everything goes from one extreme to another. All areas of their life so that's why I say they're teetering, you know, all the time. Think about how uncomfortable that would feel for you being in that experience. These folks, again, don't want to feel this way, but they're teetering. People with a condition can show dramatic shifts in the way they show regard for others. Excessive idealization to nearly complete devaluation over a brief period of time. I love you. I hate you. You're the best thing since sliced bread. You suck. 
from one extreme to another, and you are on the roller coaster ride from hell if you're dealing with this. I'm going to tell you that for me, I'll deal with antisocials every day of the week. They don't like you, that's cool with me. I don't like them either. But borderline, they pull you in, and then they push you away, and then they pull you in, and they push you away. It's very exhausting. The one unit that I worked on in the prison, um, the unit had um, 132 males that were in for two years because they couldn't get along in prison. Right? They would violate the rules, beat up their roommates, their cellies, beat up the guards. So they'd get in trouble even in jail, and they were all single housed, and so 132, and it would take two years. So that, I was assigned to that program for a while. And then they developed a borderline unit. And they needed a psychologist to transfer over to it. And the borderline unit had eight inmates compared to 132. And I said, I'll stick with my 132. Because those eight, draining. I saw one borderline, I was walking by his cell. I would see him every time. I, I worked a couple different units. And this one was in a temporary lockup because they violated some rules, right? So they were only in there for 90 days, not two years. They were in the hole, right? And I walked by their cell and for four days, I'm there five days a week, right? For, so for, for four days or three days, three days it was, every day I went by, I didn't have anyone else to see. So, you know, I'll spend time. I'll talk with you, right? Because borderlines are, as long as you're doing what they want, then you're wonderful, you're awesome, you're the greatest counselor since sliced bread, right? So I stopped by. On that fourth day, I had another inmate that was in crisis. They found out that there was a loss in the family. One of their parents had passed away. So I was walking to their cell and I had to pass by this gentleman's cell that had borderline. He's like, Mr. Bailey, Mr. Bailey, can I talk to you? And I'm like, Today, I, I don't have time to talk to you. I'll stop by tomorrow because I'm on the unit every day, but right now I've got to take care of another issue. Is that okay? I talked to you yesterday. I'll see you tomorrow. So I went right on by. On my way back by, he tried to throw urine on me and then tried to call me back and say, will you talk to me? And I'm looking at him like, dude, you, you just tried to soak me with you know, urine and feces. Why would I want to come talk to you tomorrow now? You want me close, but you push me. Why would you do that? But they don't get that. Because it's love you, hate you. Pull you close, throw you away. They're so used to abandonment. They're so used to being rejected. But they, they almost bring it on themselves in a little way. Does that make sense? Maybe they didn't at first, but now they do. They hate being alone. And they frantically seek to avoid it. So they will attach almost to anyone, but the minute that you look like you're gonna leave me alone, oh, I throw you away and I look for someone else. They experience chronic feelings of emptiness while their active emotions are very unstable. So again, instability, borderline. Suicide and self-mutilation is common. We see that, but it's, again, it's calling for attention. They're doing it to get people to come to them, right? So Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, right? There's the one scene where she's in Michael Douglas's bed. He's like, look, this affair is over. You need to leave. We're done. I'm not going to do this anymore, right? Um, he, how was it? He walks into the kitchen, I think it is. Or she walks into the kitchen. She goes to hug him, and he realizes that she's wet, 
Well, she sliced her wrists. So, of course, he grabs her and tries to take care of her. Superficial slice, not bad enough to, you know, to kill her, but enough to get him to glum on again. So, again, pull you in. Um, They may show some disassociative symptoms where they disassociate. We talked about that category of disorders, right? So again, these tend to be manipulative gestures designed to prevent abandonment, yet at the same time, they almost create walls to attachment. Under stress, psychotic symptoms may be present, and about 75% of the people diagnosed with borderline are female. Now, when we take a look at antisocial, a large portion of antisocials are male. So if we're going to say there's a gender difference, male's antisocial, female's borderline. But you can see, again, cases of either gender and either diagnosis, just letting you know. Some factors that may have caused borderline. Well, family members of borderline uh, personality disorders are five times more likely to show the same type of disorder than the general population. So there does seem to be a pattern. Maybe it's a learned pattern. Maybe there's a genetic pattern. Biological factors involved increased emotional lability. So that's this kind of roller coaster ride of emotions. So bipolar tendencies, if you want to think of it that way, and mood. They may play a role in symptom presentation. Parental neglect. Because remember, abandonment, that's what they have a history of. So parental neglect, either emotional or physical, a loss during childhood, maybe parents are gone, maybe they lost their parents, deficient attachment between child and parent, Um, they may be central. We believe there's some connection to that. Some studies have described high levels of physical or sexual abuse. Now, is this physical or sexual abuse brought on by the patient In other words, pull you close, pull you close, pull you close, and then reject you, you know, and I start saying I hate you, I might strike back with violence, you know, so was it which anticipated what, you know, what caused what, or was, were they repeated victims and then that caused this, you know, I can get close, but I can't get close, I can get close because I'm waiting for the next shoe to drop. So you can't really, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, I, I don't know that we can find that yet. I don't know that we'll ever be able to find that. But I have a feeling probably both are true. Probably both. Um, So again, we just don't know. These are some guesses. But there's no smoking gun we've identified. The treatment for borderline, first line of treatment is psychopharmacology. Again, since they have a lability of emotionality, Right, this kind of roller coaster of emotions, then maybe some mood stabilizers. Because does that also stabilize other behavior? Right? We can involve some antidepressants, SSRIs, some anti-manic drugs like lithium, you know, which just tends to be more of a, a, an anti-manic, but a little bit more of a mood stabilizer. Some studies report um, less solid support for antisocial or antipsychotic medication or anti-seizure medication. Because again, there's a little bit of psychosis there. Uh, maybe it's effective in some cases if there's a little higher psychoticism in the person. Maybe not. As, you know, eh, we don't know. So that's some of the stuff we see. Again, mood stabilization alone maybe not the best benefit. 
but that combination of anti-manic and antidepressant may be better. We can also use what's called dialectic behavioral therapy. It's a specific form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a very complex treatment. So it's a, a complex and eclectic mix of group and individual sessions dealing with interpersonal skills. Think about what their problems are and then listen to what the treatment focuses are. Interpersonal skills, emotional regulation, problem solving, acceptance, and goal setting. Acceptance that not everyone's perfect. And people might hurt your feelings, but that doesn't mean they're rejecting you. Working in interpersonal relationships, building social connections, and then maintaining them through rough spots. So it's a very eclectic mix, again, of these different approaches. Um, psychodynamic therapy, cognitive therapy by itself, in some case reports they've been okay. They've, they've shown prog you know, progress, but uh, again, it, dialectic behavioral therapy seems to be the main approach that we use with borderline. Questions? All right. Let's go for histrionic. That's the third one in this category. Remember last class, at the very end, I said histrionic, and excuse my terminology for this, is like the drama kings and drama queens. The ones that are doing things to cause attention to themselves, to cause people to look at them. All right? Now, again, there's a lot of different viewpoints of that. Um, but we'll talk about it as we make our way through. So the main features of histrionic personality disorder concerns excessive emotionality and attention seeking. The people that alter their appearance to cause attention to themselves. You know, I, okay, fine, you have some kind of cat spirit inside you. I'm not going to question that. But do you really need to make yourself look physically like a cat? Like people have actually had whiskers implanted in their face. That's starting to push the envelope just a bit. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, uh, what's, what's too much, right? Again, you, you know, what's too much piercing? What's too much tattooing? What's too much anything? So I think that's kind of what you take a look at. They have rapidly shifting emotions that may seem shallow, superficial, or exaggerated. They're almost like great actors, but they're overdramatic actors. Right? Um, I like, um, oh, who is it? Talk on it was right there. He's in Matchstick Men. Nicolas Cage. I like Nicolas Cage as an actor, but there are some movies where Nicolas Cage overacts. I mean, he just goes extreme, and you're like, dude, pull it back just a hair. It doesn't have to be that far off the hook. Right? I think Johnny Depp has that same potential at times, but I think he does a better job of pulling it back. That's why Nicolas Cage movies are really kick-ass, or they're like, they're, they're kind of hard to watch. They're one or the other. They just seem to be there. And I like Nicolas Cage. I really like him. But it's just, you know. Uh, Kick-Ass. The movie Kick-Ass, right? Um, you know, he's the dad. He's almost Batman-like in that movie, but like over-the-top Batman, like almost to the nth degree, and you're like, I don't know that you had to go that far. 
So again, but that's what you see here. So, but these aren't actors, but they seem like they're always acting and always dramatic and always emotional. There's always this turmoil around them, but not so far as they're pulling people in and pushing them away. They want the attention, always pointed in. Um, notice it says persons showing histrionic personality disorder desire to be the center of attention. They act in dramatic ways to bring that about, both in their intensity and their physical appearance. They may fish for compliments. They may act flirtatiously. They may pretend that relationships are more intimate than they really are. Because again, it's, it's, it's not quite narcissism, but there is this kind of dramatic importance. So you can see, again, there's some overlap in these categories and you go, ooh, it's really difficult to tell the difference. That's why I think this, this whole personality disorders are gonna be revamped um, in the next version of the DSM. I really do. Um, often they assume the victim or princess role in relating to others. So again, you know, I'm, I'm, everyone should look at me or, oh, what was me? I'm the victim and the martyr and, oh, you should feel bad for my situation. And um, it's always the person, like I said, I think I gave the example last class. You walk in on a Monday morning and they go, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. And you're like, let me grab my cup of coffee and have a seat first because I know what's coming. It's going to be over the top. They have manipulated suicidal gestures, often with the goal of attracting attention, and that's not uncommon, but I would argue that's a little less for histrionic than it is for borderline. They tend to seek out novelty and excitement and easily become bored with routine, because I like drama. That's why I say the drama kings and queens. Although the diagnosis is given more often to females, there's really not that much of a difference when we take a look in treatment. So, yeah, maybe women are more dramatic in the population, but when it comes to requiring treatment or those that seek treatment, then men and women, then that, again, that's why I say drama kings and queens. It's not just one-sided. Treatment. Well, treatment's going to be the same as the other ones. It's really difficult to treat. Again, when they do come to treatment, maybe some SSRIs. Talk therapy, probably the best plan if you want to think about those. But again, it's, it's difficult. These folks don't want to come to treatment. It's dramatic. Or if they do go to treatment, it's to kind of feed their, their drama. So any questions about histrionic? All right, the final cluster B, and then we're going to move on to the final category in personality disorders. There's 10 altogether. All right, so now we're on number seven. The, fine, or the, the final one in cluster B is narcissistic personality disorder. So narcissistic personality disorder is self-centered. They require admiration of others. Now, remember, antisocial is self-centered because it's all about them. It's all id. And they may use others, but I use others to manipulate them. Here, it's all about me, but it's because I'm superior. So it's a slightly different twist, right? They exaggerate their own self-importance. They're preoccupied with fantasies about their own success, brilliance, or beauty. 
If I was narcissistic, I'm God's gift to teaching. Again, I, you know, um, this isn't a political endorsement one way or another. But if I'm a president, I believe I'm the best president uh, that's ever existed on the face of the planet. My stats are better than everyone else ever. I'll let you be the judge of what you think. Right? They commonly feel entitled to special treatment because I'm that important. So what do you mean I have to wait in line with everyone else? I'm VIP status all the time for everything. They lack empathy and exploit others, but that lack of empathy is different than the lack of empathy in antisocial. They lack empathy because they are superior to you. In antisocial, they lack empathy because they don't care about you. But here, you are a, you're a stepping stone to my success. Always about success and admiration. So that's the little, again, there seems to be some overlap. You can see narcissism in antisocial. You can see some antisocial narcissism, but they're unique in their own ways. Um, they're described as arrogant, conceited, elitist, and grandiose, and can frequently be contemptuous of others. So again, it's all about me. Think giant ego. Although preoccupied with self-importance, their self-esteem, believe it or not, is actually very fragile. So this is an overcompensation for low self-esteem. They feel inferior, so I act superior. Does that make sense? Because to feel inferior is threatening, and I don't like that feeling. So then I am the greatest thing since sliced bread, when really deep inside I do not feel like that. That's why I put others down. I put others down to make myself feel higher. You got it? You know, think about that. I put others down so that then I can feel superior to them. But deep inside, I feel inferior. Yeah. So is that kind of why, like, how, like, the president is reacting to, like, because, like, the people that are supporting him are actually, like, standing up now because uh, he pulled the troops from Syria and it's been, like, like, some people are saying, like, it's the worst mistake he's made. Like, right. And he's, like, been very, like, like, he's been acting out and, like, posting more. Right. Stuff. Right. He's acting out and posting more because the people that supported him before. Like, some of his, like, friends that he, like, goes golfing with have been, like, saying something. Like, getting on his butt. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, our current president, it's 2019. So, you know, if you're listening to this recording, like, five years from now, you, you, got to, you can do some searching. Just saying. Right. They might. People might listen to this five years from now. You don't know. Someone might find it 100 years from now. So 2019 here in the United States. And, and again, there's some decisions being made by our current leader that not everyone agrees with. Well, because his self-esteem, because his self-view is so fragile, the minute someone says he makes a mistake, he's got to take digs at them. And that's what you see, right? You see attacks on others to make them feel better. And again, I'm not saying you can be the judge. You might say, no, our current leader is not narcissistic. I'll let you be the judge of that, but I've always used him as an example when he was a businessman. So I'm going to continue to do that. Now, probably the FBI is going to knock on my door and there's, you know, just saying. It's probably going to happen. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's just an opinion. 
So anyway, just throwing that out there. So again, their self-esteem is actually very fragile. Criticism may hurt them greatly, leaving them empty, humiliated, and primed for a counterattack. And that's what you see. Again, look at the symptoms being displayed. You make the calls. That's all I'm gonna say. Narcissistic personality disorder may co-occur with, dig this, anorexia, with substances, or substance use disorder, right? So again, they could be abusing cocaine. I need energy, I'm all that in a bag of chips, so I might use abuse cocaine for speed to get myself going. And at the same time, anorexia, because I have such a, a, an idealistic, perfectionistic kind of viewpoint that that sometimes feeds into that eating disorder. We'll talk more about that when we get to eating disorders. And again, for narcissism, the diagnosis is more common in males. And what do you think about treatment? Do you think these guys are going to seek treatment? No, they're superior to treatment. Right? So again, we see treatment, but there's no established you know, treatment that's really effective. Um, some clinicians say that this is actually even more difficult to treat than antisocial. And I would agree because they think they're so superior. At least with antisocial, you're breaking the law. I can get you to stop breaking the law. But here, how can I get you to stop feeling so superior? Yeah. So you had a question. Yeah. So um, is that why like, people often, like, as a society, see narcissism and think, oh, that's a personality trait rather than a disorder? Yes. Yeah, so again, we do. We, I think we do have it fall into that personality trait more so. And it is a personality trait, narcissism. But this is where that trait has gone to, you know, on steroids to the nth degree, and it's affecting all areas of their life, and, and that's what we see. Yeah, so that's a good example, and that's a good way of pulling it in. It is a, it is a personality trait. Any trait theory is what we could talk about narcissism as a possible trait that all of us may have a little bit of. But here it's extreme right way extreme yeah good good one so let's wrap up we've got one last cluster to look at this last cluster uh, cluster c so we've got cluster a b and c cluster c are personality disorders um, in which the symptoms tend to be avoidant and fearful so there's three here we had three in cluster a we had four in cluster B, now we're back to three in cluster C. So these are all gonna have a little bit of anxiety, if you will, or fear kind of mixed in with them, okay? Remember, our antisocial folk, they don't have any anxiety. Our borderline, maybe they have anxiety, but they have more abandonment issues. Histrionic are more dramatic than anxious. Narcissistic, they don't feel anxiety because they're superior. So here, these are going to be people that really experience that. Here are our three. The three personality disorders in this category are avoidant personality disorder. With avoidant personality disorder, the key descriptor is pervasive social inhibition and feelings of inadequacy. And we see about an equal ratio of males to females. So they're avoidant. So if we go back to social interaction, they want social interaction but they're avoidant of it because they're afraid they're going to be rejected. So I avoid closeness, not because I don't want it. Remember, schizoid, they have no desire for social interaction. 
Remember, if we think back, paranoid, I'm suspicious. In cluster A, schizotypal, I want it, but I'm so odd. Here, I'm avoidant of interaction because I'm afraid I'll be rejected. Um, the second one is dependent personality disorder. Dependent personality disorder is pervasive submissiveness and clingy behavior and fear of separation, more common among females. So a dependent personality disorder may glum on to one of the other personality disorders because they're willing to take the abuse. Now, I'm not saying they're happy about it. I'm just saying they're willing to put up with it. So we'll talk more about that. And then the final category here is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Make sure that you add that little piece on the end. So pervasive preoccupation with orderliness, with details, with perfectionism. And this last category does tend to be more common among males. That rigid, rigidity, if you will. So let's take a look a little further at all these. So avoidant, or avoidant personality disorder is a person that has social inhibition, hypersensitivity to being evaluated negatively, feelings of inadequacy. They're so preoccupied and sensitive to criticism that they avoid activities where disapproval is possible. With narcissism, I take on all activities because I'm superior. But here I avoid activities where I might be criticized. And this even happens in occupation and social situations. So I don't go out on dates because I'm afraid I'll be rejected, so it's just better to not go out on dates. Right? I'm not going to give the presentation in front of the sales group at my work because I'm afraid that someone will criticize the approach I used. And so I'll, I'll, you know, I'll avoid that. I'll say somebody else needs to take the lead on that. Right? Or, I, again, I just don't feel good about myself in some ways if you think of it that way. They see themselves inadequate and inferior to others, and they're usually described as shy, lonely, and timid. Avoidant. What do you think the treatment's going to focus on here? What's that? Behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy, social skills training to get them to feel more comfortable with themselves, right? And maybe some um, antidepressant medication because, again, there would be, this loneliness does have a little feel of depression about it. So, again, you know, some of the stuff we see, some causal factors, there seems to be significant overlap in symptoms, a high comorbidity between anti or avoidant personality disorder and social phobia. So again, there seems to be a fear of social interactions because of rejection. And maybe there's a biological underpinning, maybe it's something in the social phobia, you know, some kind of genetic abnormality that causes us to feel that way, that inadequacy that then continues, I don't know, in more areas. Others argue that avoidant personality disorder should be considered within the schizophrenia spectrum because of the social withdrawal, the social avoidance, and that's one of the characteristics we see in schizophrenia. They pull back from social interactions, but it doesn't have the psychoticism. So again, that's the argument that no, it doesn't belong there. Possible psychological causes include parental or peer rejection in childhood, but we don't have a lot of empirical evidence. That's the problem. 
again, these folks are personality disorders. They don't tend to show up in treatment. They're shy. They're timid. I'm not going to, you know. Dependent, this is the second one. With dependent personality disorder, there's an excessive need to be taken care of by others. That's the central characteristic, dependent. Persistent need is associated with fears of separation, clinging, submissive behavior designed to evoke caregiving. This is the, I, I once saw a uh, drug and, when I was doing drug and alcohol work, I was working with an alcoholic, he was coming in, he was married. And so I said at one point, I, I need to see your spouse. Because I knew the spouse, if the spouse could get involved in kind of confronting some of the behavior at home, maybe he would be less likely to drink at home. I, ne I needed an ally. Does that kind of make sense? So I had the spouse come in. The spouse was 29 years old, had never written a personal check, never had a bank account, didn't know how to drive. Because she met him when she was 16 years old, and he controlled her whole life. So she was willing to put up with his alcoholism because she was codependent. She, she, she needed him. She, she didn't know how to survive without him. She had put herself into a position of submission. Does that kind of make sense? So is that kind of like um, battered woman syndrome? Kind of like battered woman syndrome. It's got a little bit of feel for that. It's not a requirement. But you can see that. You know, why would someone stay in an abusive situation? Sometimes in battered wife syndrome, the person is so controlling that they don't have access. But this would be someone that more personally chooses, it, it, maybe not consciously, but to stay in that situation. Because they're so fearful that they're not going to find somebody else. They're so dependent. The person that can't use the remote control because they didn't learn how to, they need someone else to do it for them. Can you just turn on the TV for me? Really? Here's the remote control. Well, I don't know how to use it. Well, let me show you, and then you can use it from this point. I don't really care. Just turn it on for me. It's a very submissive position. It seems like um, a lot of people in like that elderly home have. Yeah, in some ways you could kind of see that, right, that where people, as they get older, maybe give up some control, maybe because I'm headed into the elderly years and I don't, I don't, I don't want to be responsible anymore. But again, I think that's driven by a different set of of outcomes than this. This is gonna start around, usually we see it again, late teens. Individuals with dependent personality disorder are uncomfortable being alone because they fear they are unable to care for themselves, so they urgently seek a replacement in relationship if a close relationship ends. So if a relationship ends, they immediately cling on to the next one, and the next one, they cannot be alone. People with dependent personality see themselves as inept and totally dependent on the advice and assistance of others. They maintain the dependent bond and may actually accept verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. So yeah, it, again, there's that tendency to be willing to be the victim because you can't take care of yourself, so you, you, you submit to that level of control. I know that out in the world, there are people in dominance and submissive relationships, right? You know, so I teach a human sexuality class, so I, you know, I know a little bit about some of that stuff. Again, someone who's willing to be the submissive to the point that they actually sign a contract, and there are people that do that, that sign a contract, that they're, 
their dominant you know, master owns them, pick out their clothes, tell them what they're going to eat, tell them what they're going to wear, tell them what their schedule is for the day. I would argue that that's a very dependent personality stance. Some say there's a level of control in there, you know, because I'm willing to give that control to somebody else. But mm, again, you, you really need to talk to someone, but there's a tendency, I think, to be more in that depressive or dependent role, I'm, I'm just saying. The condition tends to co-occur with borderline personality disorders, so there is that overlap with depressive um, and anxiety disorders. Again, there, that overlap. And again, we tend to see this more common in females. But I would argue that probably the dependent males will never show up in treatment. Um, yeah. The final category is this one, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Involves preoccupation with control, orderliness, and perfection. I describe this as the boss from hell. The nitpicky one. Everything has to be perfect. So it's not obsessive compulsive to the point where I have obsessions and compulsions, these ritualistic behavior. It's control to the nth degree. If there was an old TV show in the 70s, um, sitcom in the United States called The Odd Couple. And I would say that you know, Oscar Madison was kind of the slob. He was a sports writer. You know, his room was always trashed. Felix, Felix, uh, Oscar Madison, Felix Unger. Felix was incredibly controlling, everything perfect. And I would argue that he was more the obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Incredibly rigid, everything planned to the T. Someone who's an archaeologist. Again, some of these skill sets might actually make them good at a job. Think about the archaeologist who's going to dig a hole with a hand shovel and a toothbrush to find little specks of skull or whatever. Man, that takes a certain level of detail that most of us don't have, and I would argue that there's some obsessive compulsive personality traits underneath that. People with this condition are overly involved with rules, schedules, and details. They're insensitive to the resulting annoyance to others that they have because they are inflexible in their procedures. Um, and what is more important to them is efficiency. So I don't really care if you like what I'm doing. This is efficient. This is the only way we can do it. This must be done this way. The same preoccupation with and dedication to task interferes with friendships and leisure activities. Um, there's a movie as good as it gets. In it, um, it's Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson. In it, Jack Nicholson has obsessive compulsive disorder. He's re really rich, ritualistic. He's got five locks on his door. When he comes in the door, lock, 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 lock. Walks into the bathroom, washes his hands five times, throws stuff away. So it's very much an obsessive compulsive in, in disorder in that way. But then he's rigid. They go on a road trip. He goes on a road trip with Helen Hunt and his next door neighbor to see his next door neighbor's parents. He's really trying to get close to Helen Hunt and he's willing to do that. He has laid out for the trip CDs, music, and, 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 and everything's laid out to talk about this topic put in this CD, to talk about this topic put in this CD. So he's got all these CDs in a CD case all laid out for the trip and Helen Hunt looks at him and says, Let's just turn off the radio. 
and, and, and it, it's not the order he had planned. So that's the obsessive compulsive personality trait. Again, not the rigidness in ritualistic, it's that rigidness in full life. So again, just think about that. Uh, again, there's an emphasis on perf perfect performance, rigid devotion to principles. They typically do not trust the abilities of others towards these ends. So they sound a little narcissistic, but it's because they're so controlling. Not necessarily because I'm superior, but you're not doing it the way I want you to do it, so I'm going to do it. Unlike obsessive compulsive disorder, those with obsessive compulsive personality disorder are not particularly distressed by this. They're okay being the perfectionistic person, being the rigid. You know, obsessive compulsive, I get bothered by my rituals. I know that they seem odd or they're out of place. I know it's crazy for me to be doing this. I know it's abnormal. But here, they don't really see that. In fact, they can appear to be emotionally insensitive and unexpressive. Those with obsessive compulsive personality disorder do not display true obsessions or compulsions. Again, now, they could have a co-occurring illness. They could have OCD and OCPD. But those rituals, those compulsions and obsessions are not part of OCPD. They're a separate issue. There's no evidence of uh, family influence um, in the DSM-5, so the causal factors we don't know. People with anxiety disorders have a higher risk for OCPD. Many of the features um, appear to overlap with cluster A rather than cluster C. There may be an association, again, with depressive disorders and with eating disorders, much like what we saw in some other conditions. So again, there's a little overlap. It makes it difficult. That's why, again, I think these categories will be revised. So those are the 10. Now, DSM-5 did introduce another category, this kind of um, personality change due to another medical condition. It's a new personality classification in DSM-5. So here's what it says. Sometimes persistent personality changes can be associated with chronic medical problems or events like a stroke or a head trauma or epilepsy or an autoimmune disorder or something else. And when the changes can be linked directly to an underlying medical condition, then we use this term. So you have a personality change due to a medical condition or another condition. So again, that's different because if it wasn't for that medical condition, this might not have happened. But there's a cause, we can identify it. So that's why it becomes its own category. I believe that one will still be there when we redo personality disorders, but I think the personality disorders themselves will be glumped together in a slightly different way. All right. Some other specified personality disorders, um, sometimes people present so many symptoms they don't meet cluster A, cluster B, or cluster C specifically. Um, so again, they kind of a default category, other specified personality disorders. Um, when structured clinical interviews are employed, classification in the top three personality disorders. Um, in terms of prevalence, we do see some of that. So again, maybe they don't always fit. When they're not structured, then the most common personality disorder diagnosis is this one, other. If we're very structured, maybe we can hone in, but if we're not very structured, then it seems to be more general. You just have a personality disorder. We don't know exactly what it is. 
Because again, it seems to overlap so many other categories. It doesn't clearly fit anywhere. And then finally, here's some considerations for the future, right? In the early drafts of the DSM-5, it was proposed huge sweeping changes in this category in personality disorders. They want to drop the number of personality disorders from 10 to 6. They wanted to add a dimensional assessment component based on the five-factor model of personality, that all personalities are based on five factors, conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, openness to experience, and extroversion. So can we add some kind of dimensions on that? So it's varying degrees of those five general dimensions of personality. But what happened was they were so extensive that the APA membership said, no, no, we're not. We, we've done so much other stuff, we can't, we just can't, we can't do it. Um, so again, they kind of balked at what appeared to be confusing and time-consuming assessments. And so in the final draft, they voted down the changes because that's how changes happen in the APA, is the membership votes on the changes in the DSM. And again, the majority rules. So given the continued dissatisfaction, um, most likely they're going to be revamped. So any questions about this? So that's our personality disorders. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it.